0: welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. On today, we have librarian Katie Vance, who has so many incredible resources ready for us. I've linked them all into the show notes, but you might want to get uh, some paper and something to write with ready because she's got so many incredible ideas for anybody working in libraries or literacy. Enjoy. Hello. Uh,
1: My name is Katie Vance, and I am the secondary school librarian at Yokohama International School. My gender pronouns are she and her, please.
0: Thank you so much for making time for the podcast today. You know, Katie, when I think about uh, school culture, and I know that it's a hot topic, we're often talking about school culture and how inclusive it is. I often think of kind of the library as the pinnacle of that, because I I do think it's the space that says so much about all the other spaces uh, it's the one that reminds us, you know, what what topics are explored at this school that we we're at. You know, um, to what extent do we see our students as capable? of really going on their own learning journeys. And you know how how do we define our students as readers? Do we see them as readers? How are we encouraging them to make connections with things that are relevant? So I I really appreciate getting to talk to a librarian and getting to talk to a librarian who I absolutely love following on Twitter. So if you're not following Katie on Twitter, um, I'm gonna make sure to, to put that link there. I just, I think you're often sharing so many great resources that, you know, are not only great for for fellow librarians, but anybody who sees literacy and reading as a pathway for LGBTQ plus inclusion. It's a great place to start. Oh, um, that's so-
1: great, time, Tricia, Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I, you know, I know we'll talk about this later. But I get so many resources from you that I pass along. So I really just feel like I'm I'm working on paying it forward right now by participating today.
0: Thank you, Katie. Uh, so when we look back at the last few years. I feel like I have a sense that, you know, there's a lot of books, there's a lot of media that is, you know, telling a different story or a different type of narrative around LGBTQ plus people. Um, You know, I, I think even if you would have asked me like 15 years ago or even 10 years ago to describe a few books, I feel like, you know, I would have maybe had a few coming out stories and I don't know that I would have been able to come up with that many more um, examples. So I'm wondering, when we look back over the past few years, if you were going to point us to a few books that you're you're seeing either student interest in or as a librarian, you're trying to get students and teachers interested in them. Uh, what what kind of registers with you right now?
1: I I agree with what you said. I actually attended a conference um, just over this last weekend, the YALSA. 2020 Teen Services Symposium, and Melinda Lowe, who's a really uh, popular author and writes with a lot of LGBTQ characters, talked about how she had tracked LGBTQ publishing for uh, probably the last 15 years or so, I think, and the the shift in the last five years has been really incredible, and the difference you said between before it was coming out and always very painful stories. And now we have all these amazing stories where it's, you know, background romances or characters just happen to be LGBTQ. And that isn't the most important part of the story, which is so important. I think a great example is Cemetery Boys. Uh, We were just talking about this in a recent queer EDU chat. This book absolutely blew my mind. Um, Aidan Thomas is such an incredible author and I love what they did because the main character is a a trans character who wants to be like it's a fantasy novel and they want to be a a a bruce right like a witch but in their family and in their culture only boys can be a witch and as a trans man the family is saying that the the ritual is not going to work for you and so this character ends up going and with their best friend doing the ritual themselves and bringing themselves the power. But they also um, like bring a ghost to them and the ghost is tied to them and they have to figure out how to free that ghost. The cool thing about this is, is that the, the story is so powerful. It is also like a mystery and a thriller, it's a fantasy. It's just so incredibly well done. But as a cisgender, um person i i really found that i understood so much more about this trans person's experience even the the inclusive natural way that they talked about binding and binders it's not that i didn't know about those things before but i really felt and understood it and that's the beauty of of literature right of young adult literature so i really 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 recommend cemetery boys just outstanding
0: <clears throat> and i think Think I'll have to double check this, but I'm pretty sure I saw that that author already has another book deal and has another YA book. Yes, there coming. is something that is coming. So yeah, I mean, I, I it's been really nice to see social media really celebrating that book. Um, I you know again, I think that's a great one. If anybody is listening, and with holidays coming up, if you're interested in in picking up a, a great YA novel for somebody. Maybe that's that's one of them to consider.
1: Yeah, um, I think Cemetery Boys would be great for anyone in high school and really upper middle school. There's there's nothing in it that is going to make no, no content that's going to make a middle schooler uh, really uncomfortable. And it turns out that his his upcoming book will be a YA duology that he describes as Aztec Percy Jackson meets The Hunger Games with gender diverse gods and demigods. Uh, badass powers, life or death competition, and gay rivals to lovers. Which for me, gay rivals to lovers or rivals to lovers anywhere is always my favorite. I like that.
0: Great, yeah. So I'll also make sure to to link to that book because as people are are listening to some of the the resources that you share, uh, we'll just make it really easy for for folks to follow up with that. Um, Are there any other books that kind of have been, you know, again, you've just noticed, like, this is, again, shaping a different kind of narrative, or you feel like this is a book that's been really successful with your student reader population?
1: I think um, Cat Lay's Snapdragon just came out. Right now, my students, I mean, graphic novels have always been popular, but recently I've had to explain to kids listen, even if I spend my entire budget on graphic novels, I won't have enough for everything that you all want. So we're going to have to find some other things too. But Snapdragon is a magic, magical, realist graphic novel about a young girl who befriends her town's witch and discovers the strange magic within herself. It was incredible. And what I love is it brings in so many, um, like they bring in the loving Virginia case in the United States. They go back in history and talk about the, because this witch was uh, a very butch lesbian who was in love with, uh, she. she's white, who was in love with a uh, very like femme black woman at that time. And they couldn't be together, but it wasn't because of their race. It was because the femme woman really wanted to have kids. And that's just a minor part of the story. It's just so incredible. And the, the young kid, middle schoolers are really gonna connect with this young kid who is quirky and doesn't really fit. Um, her best friend is uh, a trans girl, but doesn't, you know, hasn't fully moved and started off in that way. It talks about family acceptance. That was really amazing. That's also a, a 2020 publication. I think probably really popular has been "Clap When You Land" by Elizabeth Acevedo, also in 2020. That's a a beautiful story because again, there there is a queer character in it, but it is not the most important thing. In this book, it's also written in verse, which is just so engaging. I mean, Elizabeth Acevedo, everything that falls out of that woman's mouth is magic. She was, a, she is a slam poet and an author. I think that's part of why. Uh, if you are looking for, it, like going back to 2019, the gender queer memoir by Maya Kobabe. Tricia, have you read that? I
0: have, yes. Ooh.
1: I finished it last night. It's been on my list. And I thought, okay, the podcast is coming. And I stayed up <laughs> so late to, it just, it's so good. And what I like is the way that, um, Maya Kobabe, the way that a, um, Maya Kobabe uses a M air pronouns, the way that a talks about their gender identity. And it, it's not about wanting to be, um, not, it's not about wanting to be a girl or a boy. It's about wanting to be not a girl. And then when A uh, is living in a more masculine way, they actually dress in a really feminine way. And I love the journey that A shares about um, their family. Just fantastic. And that one though is definitely high school. I would say, I mean, if a middle schooler finds it on their own, right? Or if you're, if you're a parent and you're thinking, oh, I have a genderqueer kid, but there's some, there's some visuals in there, particularly that I wouldn't hand to a middle school kid. I wouldn't give to my, my middle school nephew. Mm -hmm. Right. So a couple quick hits Uh, Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me by Mariko Tamaki, really fantastic. Look at lesbian relationships, friendships, and also uh, like relationship abuse and, and almost violence. Uh, the they them there: A Guide to Non-Binary and Genderqueer Identities was published in 2020. Trisha, I think I might have picked that one up from you. It's definitely academic. Um, it's it's really really good. It's not a casual read, but in terms of thinking about parents and caretakers or kids who really want to get into that for research, there's also if people want like fantasy. Reverie by Ryan LaSala is just I I think my Goodreads review said this is the gayest book I have read all year. (laughs) So it is. It's fabulous. Um, Death Prefers Blondes is is really good if you're looking for like kind of Ocean's Eleven type spy stuff. But all of the all of the thieves are drag queens, except for the one girl who is just a girl who dresses in high drag. They're really, really, really fun. I really enjoyed that. Um, And then I think, oh, I'll save my. I'll save one for one of the questions that's coming later. I think that last one. Oh, a few books that I haven't read yet, but I am going to read. I must read are "All Boys Aren't Blue" by George M. Johnson, "Felix Ever After" by Kacen Callender, which uh, someone mentioned on Twitter the other day. There are. Um, top surgery scars on the cover of the book of the main character, which is just, they said for them, it was like the most groundbreaking thing that could have happened in publishing. I think it's probably um, sort of like when that David Levithan book came out with the boys kissing uh, Mm. cover that was so, you know, oh, we can't possibly have this book. And of course I put it in the front of everything in the library. Uh, You should see me, in a crown by Leah Johnson and then uh when we were magic also also looks really really good. Yeah, so there's there's so much great stuff out there. We're just so lucky to be living in this time. Like Melinda Lowe said in the last, you know, 3 to 5 years the publishing arc has gone up so high and I think we have a lot of things to thank for that. It's it's people like you who are bringing these all of our LGBTQ issues to the forefront and organizations like we need diverse books. It's, it's a really good time to be, to be alive and be an LGBTQ kid or adult or ally.
0: Well, and, you know, also I'm thinking of the two tools that, that you kind of mentioned there that I think do so much to just help each other stay up with what's current Goodreads. You know, I often talk about if you are reading, you know, books that are by an LGBTQ plus person, or, you know, again, uh, you think are a great example of representation, how important it is to be sharing that on Goodreads. And of course, Twitter, you know, I, I feel like I find so many great recommendations in that place too. Um, and I, I kind of just, again, I think as a small act of allyship, anytime folks are, are reading a book like that, it's it's really great to just tell more people about it. Because I yeah. do think, um, even though you're absolutely right, I feel like especially, with YA fiction there are so many more titles than there used to be mm-hmm. i still find for a lot of folks they're not necessarily aware of those titles or it's that the so-called traditional canon is just so embedded in yeah. <laughs> in school culture that um you know i think unfortunately when you say YA there's still some other books that people you know, just you hear those titles again and again. Well, NYA is
1: such a broad, I mean, it's such a publishing powerhouse right now, right? There's so much money behind it that even though the percentage of LGBTQ books has gone up, it is still a really small percentage of all the books that are being published. And it's also so easy as a librarian to just order the major hits the the big things that everyone is talking about and not dig a little bit deeper and, and look at some of the other things that we need to be prioritizing. I find on Twitter, I'm a Twitter more is more kind of person. I've never, um, you know, subscribed to this philosophy that I should narrow things down. I don't see why I love getting all the things. And so anytime I see someone tweeting about a an LGBTQ author or someone tweeting about LGBTQ books, I, I follow them. And you know, every once in a while I go back and I'm like, ooh, that was a bad choice. We, we've got to get rid of you. But for the most part, it's just constantly growing my network of resources, which is really exciting.
0: Well, and that makes me wonder, you know, what are some of the opportunities that you think are important for librarians to take when it comes to helping their schools be more LGBTQ plus inclusive? I mean, you had referenced even that small act of saying the book that some folks think is taboo. Nope, we're going to have that out on display. Um, And I I kind of think, you know, schools do they set the tone on what is taboo and what is, you know, we're talking about what's relevant and the reality of the world. And I, I think, again, even just that act of saying, no, this is going to, it's not going to be hidden or, you know, not even included in the collection. It's going to be front and center. So are there any other things that you think are really important for librarians that are thinking, I want to do more for this. What else might I consider?
1: I'm really glad that you asked this question. I I really think that, the most important thing that a library can do and librarians can do is make sure that libraries are inclusive safe spaces for all kids. For me, it's for for tweens and teens. And there's lots of ways that you can do that, particularly for your LGBTQ plus kids. Number one, I think regular public promotion um, of LGBTQ books and not, it's not, it's actually worse personally, I think, to do a once of the year, here are our gay books display, right? They need to be constantly a part of every book talk that you do. And even as a member of the queer community, like I remember when I first started promoting uh, books with LGBTQ content in my book talks, I, I felt a little embarrassed, like I would blush a little bit, cause I'm like, oh, because i have that internalized shame right particularly of a kid who grew up in the 90s when uh we were going through don't ask don't tell in the united states right like and i I'm, I'm human. I worry. What are the kids going to think? Blah blah blah. I am totally over that now that is fine. But you know, the first couple of times it can be a little hard, but what you need to do is do like here, we're going to do a romance display and then you go through and you do it like a sandwich and you have a couple straight cisgender books on each side. And then you have all the good juicy LGBTQ stuff in the middle. And it's really great. And And you just, when you talk about it, like it's normal since it is, Eventually the kids are like, oh, okay. And you know, I've been at YIS for six years now. Definitely the first couple of years, there were like eyes going left and right. What is this lady doing? And now they're just like, oh yeah, it's the gay books. That's great. And now kids know because I talk to them about it. They come to me, I'm like, Miss, can you show me where the bisexual books are? I um, you know, I need them. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no problem. Let's go find these. And I also try to make sure, like, if it's a girl who's coming to me asking for a bisexual romance. In my head, I'm thinking, ah, you're asking for this bisexual romance because this is something you're dealing with. But since I don't actually know that, I make sure to offer them bisexual you know, um, romance between girls, bisexual romance between guys, bisexual romance that maybe, of course, also has some straight relationships in it. The one that um, a girl hit on the other day when she asked for this, was called Ramona Blue and she was excited about this book because Ramona Blue is about a girl who has been definitely a lesbian her entire life until all of a sudden she meets this guy and now she is very uncomfortable because what is she gonna do with these feelings? And I love that it, it that it's such a nice way to look at bisexual because so often we look at bisexual as, oh, you've always been in this um, opposite sex relationship but now you're bisexual because you're finally trying same sex and it can go both ways And and I don't know, I feel like that doesn't get talked about quite enough. So yeah, number one, regular public promotion of books. Number two, uh, incorporating LGBTQ content into your research lessons. In the same way that we want our math teachers to not just talk about Alan Turing's math, but we also want to recognize his queer life and how he suffered for that with the government, right? Um, We need to be doing the same thing as librarians. So for example, I led a... um, session with grade 10 students where they're researching into the shift between the Edo period and the Meiji period in Japanese history. And there is so much homosexuality in samurai culture in Japanese history. Mm -hmm. And so I, one of the model searches I did was about homosexuality in Japanese history. And we looked at different keywords that we could use and what those results would be. So I think we really have a responsibility to make sure that we are incorporating it not just in novels, but in the everyday functioning of the library and the things that you're promoting, the posters that you have. And you know what? There's lots of other things too. Join your school's LGBTQ group, attend their meetings. If you are, um, not a member of the community, but you're an ally, then you the, you are absolutely gonna be welcome there. And you are now another safe person for kids to talk to. If you don't have an LGBTQ group, look into starting one, look into hosting it, um, find, find other allies at school that can help you do that. I think also we wanna make sure that we purchase and promote LGBTQ plus oriented um, professional learning books and resources. Mm. There's a great one that was written by a 16 year old queer kid um, that is called, let me see. I wrote this down. Okay. There's a great one written by a 16 year old queer kid called Read This, Save Lives. I believe the the student's name, the child's name was Samir. It was published in 2018. It has more than hundred actionable tips created with busy resource constrained teachers in mind. That's really kind of a kid to think of us in that way um, the, I really, I think it's really important that we get that and we push it on our teachers as well. It's part as a librarian, our job is not just the kids. It's also the teachers that we work with. I, each week, our school has a secondary express email that they send out to all the teachers. And in there, I put a weekly research tip, but I also put a weekly queer, your classroom tip. So yesterday's tip was about this weekend's Los Angeles models, Los Angeles LGBTQ Center models of pride conference for students, for parents, and for teachers. Uh, In the past, I've had queer classroom tips that include the gender bred person or an update on Japan and the status of the lawsuits involving same sex relationships in the government, resources from welcoming schools on how to respond to that so gay, um, and teaching tolerance on creating inclusive classrooms. So we just have to look for ways that. We can model, you know, model using gender, gender neutral language, use inclusive pronouns in your staff meetings and on your emails, make sure that you're talking about LGBTQ stuff in meetings. And then I think the last thing is make sure your library is an absolute no-go space for intolerance. So when you hear kids say something that is gonna make, when you hear kids say a gay slur, when you hear kids make assumptions about people based on gender, stop and have a kind, calm conversation with them about it. And at the very least, they're at least going to get so tired of having these calm, kind conversations that they're going to stop doing it. But hopefully you're also going to be shifting their mindset and their behavior. Yeah,
0: that's so important. And again, I think especially because the librarian the library is so central it's sort of the heart of the school, it is important that they realize, you know, this very critical part of our school, you know, the things that we tolerate in that space, that really sets the tone for other spaces as well. And, and Katie, I also really appreciate that you brought up when you initially started doing those book talks, the own, your own sort of sense of awkwardness, because I think sometimes, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to, you know, teachers that are not a part of the queer community, uh, they almost feel a sense of shame of like, I'm embarrassed. And I think it is important that you realize the first time you're you're having that conversation through, everybody feels a little bit, you know, of awkwardness. And, and sometimes the analogy that I give is like if I had to substitute a math classroom and I was using, you know, math terms that I was not really familiar with those first few times through, like I'd also have that sense of awkwardness. And you know, also for admin to realize that if you do have queer staff to make sure, you know, that they feel really really supported having those conversations because I know without that, you know, it does it does feel really tricky. Um and just to realize that especially like I grew up in the 90s as well. Uh, and I I totally agree with you that lingering kind of internalized homophobia is, you know, I'm 40 now, it's still very real for me. Um I was leading a professional development session during the election week uh wow. with a school in the US and you know tensions were very high and uh, just at, at the very start of it, when it was just kind of like social chatter, I had referenced, I had said, you know, oh, my spouse, I can't even remember what we were talking about. Uh, and another woman said, oh, your husband must blah, 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 blah. And, you know, with the additional stress of the elections, usually I I always correct people and say, no, you know, my wife, and it's not a big deal, but, and I just felt like I, I don't want to be perceived as the problem. You know, I even that moment came back where I felt like, is it political for me to correct this person? And, you know, no, it's my wife, you know, and and so I think those, those feelings are still, it it is a part of it, right? Because I didn't go to a school where the librarian was having book talks like that. So I think for many of us as educators, we feel like we're pioneering something. So we've got that big wave of the, the awkwardness to kind of push through. And I'm wondering before you started doing that kind of work at your school, was there a conversation that you had with other colleagues or with admin to find out if it was going to be a problem or not?
1: Oh, that's that's really interesting. Um, well, first, thank you for sharing that because that is one, well, you know, my heart breaks for you that you and I, to a certain degree are still going through these things. Um, it just really emphasizes how important it is for us to be creating spaces where our kids aren't raised with this shame and this this homophobia. Uh, you know, I think I'm lucky at YIS because there are uh, a few um, queer teachers on staff. I was hired in a group that had another um, <clears throat> gay man in the group of teachers that got hired. We, we do have, like I said, queer teachers on staff. Um, I did have an interesting conversation with a, a colleague in the first couple months of school where I said, oh, well, you know, uh, my ex, and they were like, oh, and and what was he like? And I said, oh, actually, she, and they went, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I should, I just assumed, and I said, hey, hey, it's okay. It's not a big deal. And they're like, no, no, I should have. And I said, yeah, but it's fine. And um, I mean, you know, it's not fine, but it is fine, because in that moment, I realized, like, oh, this person made an assumption, but also at this school, it really is okay. Mm -hmm. And so this was from the very beginning, I realized that this was going to be all right. I think also in my application, I was very clear about the things that were passionate to me and the things that, you know, making an inclusive environment. And of course, here today, we're talking about LGBTQ plus kids, but I, that is for all kids, right? I talk about all sorts of different identities and backgrounds. And so that would have come up in my interview. I know in my my previous school, I remember being in a uh, professional learning meeting and raising my hand when we were new and talking about what we were going to be doing for clubs and stuff. And I, I raised my hand and asked if there is an LGBTQ plus club here. And there was kind of like a little, you know, uncomfortable giggle. And I said, you know, it's okay. We can call it a geography club. I just think it's something important to have happen. And I, Someone came up to me afterwards and said, just so you know, like, we're fine that you're um, in a same-sex relationship here, but that's not something you're going to want to talk to about to other people and certainly not to kids or the community. Um, and when I told one of the lesbian couples that works there that that happened, they were, whoo, they were so mad. But you know what the reality was at that time in that school and in the country that we were in? it wasn't a safe space. And that that was kind of the reality of where we are. I, I have been so happy to see that since I left that school, An Equality and Diversity Club got started. And um, with some younger kids too, like upper elementary, lower middle school, I think. And they've done some really incredible things. But, you know, I think it is about, uh, one, deciding, what works for you in the place that you're going to work at, particularly in international schools, but it's the same in North America. There are places that are not safe for queer people and in North America. And that doesn't mean that as a queer person, you have to X out every place that not non-inclusive. Because I know some people who are working in schools that are very closed-minded, that are really making a change by being that person who is subverting that message. Right. Um, But you have to make sure that you're willing to do that because that is, that's beyond a labor of love. It, It really can slowly eat you up if you're not careful. So, yeah, I think at my school, I just, it's service oriented. It's international. Look, we have, we have families in our community that aren't pro LGBTQ rights, but they also are like, but I chose to come to this school. And I understand that this is what this school is about. It helps that like at our school for the last, Three four years, except for COVID, we have marched as a school in the Pride Parade in Tokyo. There are posters advertising that we're doing that. So st- parents and students who come to our school know the kind of school that they're coming to. And even if they don't dis- they don't agree, they're not about to stand up and protest that because they understand that's what we're about, and that's good.
0: And and that, and that is really great. And I I like that you point out that you know schools can shift. So if you are at a school and you feel like it is, it's got a ways to go, you know, that progress can be incremental. I think you and I have both seen that happen at different places. And I I really appreciate your point too, about, you know, sometimes location is not as important as school. I've been in a, you know, in in countries or in cities, which, you know, have a reputation for being incredibly progressive, but then school culture um, can be not necessarily representative of that and vice versa. Um so yeah, I, again, and I, I think that admin, if you can support your queer staff, you should support your queer staff. And I, I really like too that, you know, a lot of it is just this the signifiers that are don't always have to be these huge, gigantic statements. Like it's it's wonderful that your school marches in the in the pride parade, but I'm even thinking of Um, the different school leaders now who I'm seeing who include their pronouns in their email signature. And just, you know, that, that, that very small gesture means so much. And is such a strong
1: signifier. Um, One of the, one, look, there were so many interesting tweets after the recent election in the United States, but one of my favorite ones I saw was when people screenshotted Kamala Harris's Twitter bio and her gender pronouns were in there. And re- I mean, honestly, like, I'm tearing up. It's very, we're very lucky. It's good.
0: Uh, yes, I'm, I'm feeling very positive about that, too. And again, I think it's an indicator sometimes, you know, of when we are doing this sort of educational piece with students, you know, I think sometimes there's a misconception that it's just about the queer kids and it's not. And I, you know, not that this is the best rationale for it, but I think for all students who are looking at going out into the workplace and are looking at, you know, you're going to be working. I think a lot of, a lot of our students working in spaces where inclusivity is the expectation, um, he, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of just different things in the news. There's a university student who was up for a hockey scholarship. And then it came out that he had been bullying a boy and was saying mm-hmm. all sorts of homophobic things. And the professional team took his, his, um, his, his offer away. So, you know, again, I, I think that things have shifted in terms of what it means to be a professional. Mm-hmm. And I often think a lot of the, uh, you know, the mindset and the inclusive language is also kind of a part of that future ready workplace thing that, that students need to. And again, not that that's the, the be all end all of, of doing this work, but I do think that is a part of, um, part of it as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. So-
0: Katie, I'm wondering what media literacy topics are interesting you, um, you know, again, libraries have also changed just full stop, you know, again, taking like 10 or 15 years back, um, you know, the things that people go to for a library or the things that we, you know, think of as librarians' responsibilities has really changed. So I'm just kind of wondering, um, in the world of, in the broader world of media literacy, what's some of the stuff that's been on your mind that you're excited about?
1: Well, I think... As a librarian, and this is this is a moment where I, I I feel very vulnerable because it it is a part that I know that I have so much to learn. I I feel overwhelmed by this, but just the entire idea of the simple way to put it is reliable sources. The current term uh, of the of the day is fake news, right? But i it's interesting in working with an international set of students i'm never sure exactly how to tackle this because in the united states uh where as i am an american i think it's very clear how you can look at fake news how you can look at how it's working out in politics and in where students are getting their information from i saw an incredible bulletin board by one teacher the day a teacher librarian in the days after the election where they made a map of the United States on a bulletin board and on each state put a QR code for where you could go to get reliable information about the election and the counting of votes in those states Mm -hmm. and an explanation of how you could figure out if these sources were reliable or not. And so, and of, of course, as an American, a lot of my I work very hard to diversify it, but a lot of my media intake, a lot of my Twitter is, is very American. So I see tons of great resources from American librarians on how to do that. But as an international school librarian, the, I think it's really important. One of the things I work on um, is to try and ensure that I am not just offering a North American view of things. right, And that I'm not just incorporating that. So it's really the, the idea of journalism reporting, understanding factual information has gone so far beyond the methods that we have used traditionally as librarians, like the CRAP method, currency, relevancy, authority, accuracy, and purpose that came out of a, a university library, um, take it apart, uh, authority, purpose, accuracy, relevance, and time, right? That is not enough now. And <clears throat> one of the the thing that made me think about this when you asked me this question and i was thinking about this ahead of time was what i've been seeing in the news recently about now that twitter and facebook are trying to and there's debate about how well they're doing it or how much they mean it but are trying to step up their accountability for misinformation for the spreading of misinformation the shift of people who want to share that misinformation to new locations on the internet so there are a couple Uh, two articles from the New York Times that I read. One is uh, titled Newsmax Courts Fox News Viewers with Election Denialism. And apparently Newsmax is this sort of, well, it was described by the New York Times as a right-wing sort of like factory for conspiracy theories and and right-wing versions of the news, which how crazy is that that we're even talking about right-wing versions of the news? And by the way, the left is also producing their own misinformation. They have got tons of clickbait headlines as well, but I don't think to the same degree. Another article is fact-checked, fact-checked on Facebook and Twitter, conservatives switched their apps and they started talking about places like Parlor, gab.com. And what this made me think about for kids is I don't know enough about where my students are getting their news information. Mm. And if I don't know that... How am I going to teach them about how to evaluate that information? I mean, IFLA, the International Federation of Library Associations, put out a great uh, fake fake news sort of analysis fact sheet. It has maybe, I can send you the link so that you can add it afterwards. It has maybe eight questions that you should be asking. They created a COVID-19 version of it. The original version has been translated into something like 38 languages, I want to say the the new COVID version has been translated into maybe 15 but still I know you you asked me like you know where should I, I let people what are some resources that people should explore and I guess what I'm really doing is saying these are some questions we need to explore particularly in international school libraries where our kids are so diverse and they are from so many places that we need to have an awareness of where all their news is coming from and a lot of it might be in languages that we don't read. I mean, I I can read in English. I still read a little bit of news in Brazilian Portuguese. I'm not intaking anything in Japanese, right? But my kids are reading in probably 25 different languages. So yeah, that is something that is, I am thinking about. And particularly with teenagers who, as you said are going on to be professionals, who are going on to universities and careers. I want them to go out to be able to be adults to be able to conduct a good sniff test and think, I don't know, this doesn't sound right. Uh, That's, oh, go ahead, yeah. Just one one more thing I wanna add. The other thing is I saw that Sassy Roberts video, the deep fake Sassy Roberts video from the guys who did South Park. And I had only heard of deep fake. I didn't even really know what it was. And now they said they did it because they wanted to make people feel better and laugh a little bit. And I'm like, I am so freaked out, (laughs) I can't believe this. So it made, me, it made me really uncomfortable. And that is something that I just don't know what to do with. And we can totally cut this part. I just wanted to toss that out. There. No,
0: I, that's really interesting because, you know, and I think the idea of deep fakes, that's, you know, it's been going on for a while now, but I think that's something that's going to really explode. Um, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Ted Radio Hour, hosted by Manush Somarodi, just recently did an episode about that. And it's, it is both terrifying and also just, you know, connects back to what you said about, I think part of that idea of, you know, how are we selecting our news? uh, In that episode, they talk a lot about how, you know, it's our lizard brains that are clicking things, right? So if this is going to outrage me, or, you know, this already throws fuel on the flames of my, you know, existing strong emotions about something, I want to consume that, right? That's part of human nature. and, And how do we actually retrain our brains to not always just be so attracted to news. That's, I don't know. That's either. Just about our emotional state or, you know, again, pulling us further into our, our rage or or our fear, because I I definitely think you're right. Like I've seen far leaning left and far leaning right. Just Mm -hmm. go with that model. That's what gets clicks. The stuff that's just fishing for outrage.
1: And trying to get ourselves out of our um, our news bubbles and our search bubbles, right? And this is something we've been talking about for a long time. It's just so easy to use Google, especially when we're in schools that use the whole suite. Why then would you make a step to go outside that? We just had a TEDx event at our school. Um, God, I'm proud of the kids who, who ran that. They're just so impressive. It's the first time we've done it at our school. And one of the students talked about privacy. Mm. Uh, and it was just really powerful to see him uh, be speaking to kids about that and just mentioning even the simplest things like using DuckDuckGo instead. And of course, well, not of course, but he was concerned about the people who are taking my information, but they're also the conversation I'm looking forward to having with him is about uh, also making sure that you are getting unbiased information and that our searches are biasing our information. And I think that's probably something I need to talk about more with kids. It's just good to know that they're already talking about it. So like most things in education, this will be a conversation, not a information dump, which is great.
0: Gosh. And I feel like that's such an important part of it too, right? That um, I I think teenagers or preteens are not interested in being lectured at when it comes to this stuff, right? Because Mm -hmm the reality is I I think many of them are consuming more news media than most of us were when we were teens. Yeah. Um, So I I think in terms of, you know, validating their experience is is a really important step. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, So, you know, Katie, I I also, we were talking about some of the books that have been popular recently. And, you know, you were also mentioning that in the world of YA, sometimes, you know, there are these just rocket ship books that take off and, they are the end all be all, but I do I do know there's a lot of um, you know upcoming or, or more recent LGBTQ plus authors um, who might not have gotten so much of that media spotlight. Are there any LGBTQ plus authors that you're thinking? Hey, you might not have heard of this person, uh, but they are worth some of your time. So pick up some of their
1: books. I don't know if this author is act, is queer or not, but they wrote so Gozi Ukawa. She is uh, has Nigerian-born parents, and she went to a university somewhere in the Boston area. And she somehow, while she was there, ended up becoming friends with the ice hockey team and just thought these people were the most wonderful people on the planet, which really just makes me laugh a little bit. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure they are wonderful people. It's just not what you think of uh, ice hockey players as being kind, welcoming women. <laughs> And so Ngozi Ukawa wrote this graphic novel called Check, Please. I think the first one is Sticks and Scones. And it is about a young man. His name is Biddy. And he was an ice dancer. And he was supposed to, like, he was going to go to the Olympics as an ice dancer. And that didn't work out for whatever reason. But because he was an incredible skater, he made his way onto his university's hockey team. And Biddy was a closeted Uh, teen. He was gay. He didn't tell anybody else in the fraternity, the hockey fraternity house um, that he was gay. And he's also a vlogger about baking, like a really passionate vlogger about baking. So Biddy Bakes all the time. He is the most adorable, wonderful young man in the history of the world. And it's a gay romance between him and another member on the hockey team that It's not what I like about this is, you know, we talked earlier about how a lot of stories are painful coming out stories and everything is terrible and look at the suffering and my parents send me to conversion therapy and those stories are important because it is true and it does happen, but it's so important that we just have beautiful, lovely stories This book is hilarious. It is definitely something that is really only, uh, if you are a librarian, do not hand this to your middle school kids because it is just littered with the F word. I mean, they're hockey guys who live in a house in college, but it's also like a really beautiful view of what university life can be like. Mm. All the other um, hockey players are each their own quirky characters. It deals with also mental health issues and anxiety and family relationships. And what I like is that, you know, without spoiling, when Biddy does come out because they're like, oh, we're having the date night. Who are you going to bring? It's going to be great. What about this girl? What about this girl? What about this girl? And finally, he says, actually, you know, I like guys. And they're like, oh, great. How about Bob? You know, and they just bring him right in and accept him. And it is funny and it is lovely. I just, the drawing is fantastic. Ngozi Ukawa wrote something so amazing. It has two volumes and the resolution of the second one was great. At the end of each of them, kind of similar to some manga that I've read, it has like little features where you get to see all of Biddy's tweets over the course of the year that this book covered, which is just so funny and quirky. The one thing I will say is Ngozi Ukawa also writes i remember thinking this was great but i would have liked like just a little bit more of the sexy and so i was having a conversation on twitter with my friends about this it turns out she writes like little side volumes of uh biddy and i think the boyfriend's name is jack like Biddy and Jack kind of graphic novel. I'm going to say a little bit porn and she hides it because she knows she has young fans. So she hides it on your, her website. You really have to go digging for it. It doesn't pop up immediately. And I was just like, this is amazing. So it's like she writes her own fan fiction kind of She writes her own fan fiction. It's so great. So yeah, I really loved her. And then I think this is very Japanese. The second one I'm going to add, but there is an author named Gengoro Tagame. Um have you heard of my brother's husband? No. Oh, it's so good. It's really beautiful. Now, to a North American audience, it can feel a little um simplistic sometimes. And part of that is because it's it's manga. And I want to be clear, manga is not simple. But when you are first coming to it, it can it can feel a little bit simple. It, it, at least that's what people say sometimes. I do not feel that way. Um So my brother's husband was published in, I think 2017, the English translation of it was. And it is the story of, there are twin Japanese boys who've grown up together in Japan. And one of the twins moves to Canada. And basically like his brother doesn't hear from him again and while he's in canada he meets a beautiful canadian man named mike like a real big bear of a guy named mike they get married the um and then and then he dies and so mike is heartbroken and he has heard so much about japan and this place where his husband grows up grew up so he goes to japan to visit the family and he shows up on the doorstep and of course you have to remember they were twins. So basically Mm -hmm. he is seeing his husband who has just passed away, standing in front of him when the brother opens the door and he gives him this big hug. And the brother is like, oh, ew, oh my God, you homophobe and kind of pushes him away. And then the, so the niece, the, the little girl comes out and is like, who's this? And so Mike introduces himself and they get to know each other. And what's gorgeous about this book is that in Japan, a country where same-sex marriage is still not legal and don't believe the hype that people are saying about, oh, but it's legal in Shibuya and it's legal in Shinjuku. Those are basic civil protections Mm -hmm. in, in small portions of the city. It is not nationwide same-sex marriage or same-sex civil rights. Um, this Book became popular and then it got turned into an anime that was played on NHK that became very popular. So the journey that these characters go through to becoming more accepting and, and then loving and making Mike part of the family is so beautiful. I did, I read this in the most Japanese way on a Shinkansen, eating a bento box of sushi, headed out on vacation, and I cried the whole way. It's just so gorgeous. And this year, this book is one of the, um, Sakura medal novels for our, the international schools in Japan get together and we do a book competition where the kids vote for which book should win the Sakura medal. And it's one of the middle school Sakura medal novels this year. So this guy, Gengoro Tagame is incredible. Um, As a side note, He became very famous in uh, certain circles before this for writing a lot of gay male manga porn. So you should be very careful about what you order. You want my brother's husband for your school libraries and maybe some of his other works for yourself.
0: Thank you for that. You see, this is, again, librarians are just, they've got the, they have the insider tips. That's why it's always (laughs) great to go to them first. You know, and and Katie, you know, I think the the other question that a lot of folks who are listening are going to be wondering is, where are you going to learn about upcoming books? Because, um, you know, again, if you're, if you're referencing books that folks are hearing you say, like, I've never heard about that before. I think if you want to diversify your library, one thing that you can do is also just change up, you know, like we were talking about with your news media, change up kind of the sources that you go to, um, who are telling you about great upcoming books. So do you have some places that you'd recommend?
1: Yes. Um, i have so we talked a little bit about goodreads and on goodreads i started following casey the canadian lesbrarian, and her uh, given name is casey stepanuk s-t-e-p-a-n-i-u-k she writes so widely and reads so broadly I also appreciate that she's very honest without being unkind. Mm. If she doesn't care for a book, she will explain why and why she didn't finish, but she doesn't crush it. I'm not I'm not great at that. I tend to either just say something kind or not say something at all, or use emojis to express myself when I'm feeling <laughs> very uncomfortable. Uh, so yeah, Casey the Canadian Lesbrarian is fantastic. I also recently discovered a man named Rogan Shannon. He's a deaf queer guy. And I tripped across him because he did a sign language interpretation of uh, just a beautiful song. I will. I'll see if I can find the link and send it to you. It was either Ariana Grande or Katy Perry, and and it was really. I mean, the way he did it just so moved me. And then I thought, oh, I have to see what else this man does. And then I found out he's a queer book blogger, and I was so happy. So. Rogan Shannon both has a blog under his own name and a YouTube channel. And oh. he he does like regular roundups of books. So that led me to, he and um, a woman named Kathy Trihart, they are doing something called a Queer Lit Readathon. And they do this uh, like four times a year. Well, they do two big Queer Lit Readathons a year. The next one will be from November 29th to December 5th. They have a bingo card of all the different kinds of things that you should try to accomplish during that time. They've been publishing leading up to this. Here are the books we're gonna read, here are the things I'm gonna try. like if you want a background romance, if you want an Ace story, if you want all of these things. And I just thought, oh my goodness, I have hit the the Golden Gay jackpot. Like this is fantastic. So that was really, that's really good. Yeah, but really also, Rogan Shannon, watch his videos. He, he's blown my mind. Um, on Twitter, I really like to follow Kanaka Suwa, who I uh, discovered through you. Did I pronounce her name correctly? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I really like to follow Kanaka Suwa, who I discovered through you um, and the Queer EDU chat. Mm-hmm. We had a great chat this past month where people shared all sorts of resources, and it was very clear that Kanako is on it with the LGBTQ reading. Um, Tricia, of course I get really, I get so many good things from you and I'm so grateful to you always sharing and tagging and you don't just tag everybody, you know, right? Like you really think carefully about who is the person that needs this book or needs this resource. And I'm very grateful for that. Oh,
0: thank you. That's really kind. Mm -hmm.
1: I think also awards like Mike Morgan and Larry Roman's Children's and Young Adult Literature Award, the Stonewall Book Awards, the Rainbow Book List, all of these are from the American Library Association. And they're just really, it's really good work. There's also a woman named Dahlia Adler, and she runs a website that is called LGBTQ Reads. And I think I had kind of seen it beforehand, but I saw her on, at this conference I attended last weekend online and she, uh, is a bisexual woman. She is an author and she basically LGBTQ reads is this giant library of everything LGBTQ mm. that has ever been written. And it has it organized by categories. I can't believe I've been going anywhere else. It, it really is amazing. Uh, On Twitter, you know, some great authors, I'm finding Aidan Thomas and Mark Oshiro are just so good at uplifting other LGBTQ voices in writing and in publishing. They're really outstanding. Uh, Of course, at Diverse Books, the We Need Diverse Books movement is very good. It's not just LGBTQ, but that's great because you also get the intersectionality. And then one that is not specifically LGBTQ, but I think is very important is The global lit in is the Twitter um, name and world kid lit is the hashtag that's attached to it. They talk about um, internationally, like things that are published outside of North America, mostly lots of translated into English literature. And I find that that is really important because right now, a lot of the LGBTQ books that I am getting are very North America focused. And I like to do my best to keep an eye on what's being translated to see what gems I can get there, not just for, you know, the regular reading, but specifically to see is there anything coming out of there that's LGBTQ, because especially as an international school librarian, I want my students to be able to see themselves in more than just, oh, this is what it's like to be a gay kid or a bi kid or a trans kid in a high school in, you know, small town North America. Mm-hmm. Dr. Radeen Sims Bishop talks about this. Uh, her quote, books need to be mirrors in windows, has been co-opted by so many people, but she said it first back in 1991. And it's so important. And I think it's really important, particularly for North Americans, that we are looking outside of of our publishing to see where else we can find those things, and the world kid lit hashtag really helps with that.
0: I, I just thank you for that list. That's really great, and again, I appreciate because I like coming up to the holidays. I I think that books are the best gift to give, um, and so I'm I'm definitely going to go through all of those resources. And again, I'm really glad that you pointed to the idea of of Goodreads and and following other other people. Um, I just I absolutely adore Goodreads, and I'm I'm so sad when I'm talking to an educator and they're like, no, I can't use this one more thing. It's like, it's, it's wonderful. It's
1: so much. It's, it is the thing. Like, I don't know how people, particularly people who are working in literacy in any way, if you're not on there at the very least, like don't record what you're reading fine, but get on and see what other people are reading. Follow the authors. I love following the authors and I'm not fangirling about that. I mean, they share so many good resources. When someone who writes something incredible recommends something, I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm, yes, this has to happen, okay. Anything Neil Gaiman says I have to read, I I do it immediately. That's how I discovered Monstrous. Have you read the Monstrous comic? I have not, I'm writing this down as well. It's by Marjorie Liu, and I believe the illustrator is Sana Takeda, Uh, T-A-K-E-D-A. And it is set in like 19, an alternative 1900s, I'm gonna say maybe Hong Kong, completely matriarchal society. And they are not nice. It is amazing, It's, it's fantasy. It is incredibly lush comics. I got to the end of the first volume and I'm like, I don't know if I even know what happened here. I've read all three volumes that are out and It is blowing my mind. It's one of those comics where you're like, wow, the people who wrote this are so much smarter than me. I've had to reread it a couple of times. They have necromancers in it, which are cat necromancers who are both librarians, but also cats who can bring people back to life. I'm it's- sold. I'm sold. <laughs> That's going to be,
0: um, we're, we're getting a new, a new dog in two weeks. And my wife and I both agreed that we get to, cause you know, we were talking about kind of what we want for Christmas. And I was like, but it's so boring for me to get you what you've told me you want. Like what if we, the dog gives us each a gift and you can decide what the dog is giving you so i think i think that might be what the dog is giving me for. thank you I love that. uh you know and i love that you talked earlier about this idea that as a librarian you want to make sure that your library is a safe space um and, and you did talk a little bit about what you what you actively do to ensure that but i also you know i've had this conversation with folks before with admin who say well certainly our school is a safe space or certainly my classroom is a safe space And I'm wondering if you have any other questions that you would say, you know, if you're a librarian or, you know, you're somebody who uh, is kind of responsible for a a significant space on campus and you feel like it is your responsibility to make sure that it's a safe space. Are there any questions that you would recommend that educators ask in order to kind of test that or to think about, you know, what is our library or what is this space saying about the rest of our school community?
1: Mm. Well, I, I think it's interesting how you said, of course, it's a safe space, right? And the the first question is, who is your community? What do they need? And how exactly do you know that? How do you know that? I've been really moved lately by some of the work that Dr. Mega Subramaniam from the University of Maryland and Linda W. Braun have been doing and publishing in, I uh, I think it's in School Library Journal, and they're rethinking libraries. And one of the things they wrote about recently is how during this COVID time, libraries just jumped and made decisions about what their community members needed. And they didn't do the research to find out what that actually was. They made those assumptions. In particular, they were talking about like directors of public libraries who didn't consult even the people that worked for them. What are we seeing? What do we need? So how are you collecting information? And, uh, you know, I don't want to sound too lofty when I say we have to have qualitative and quantitative data because, you know, those are fancy words, but really, if you are not both surveying and formally interviewing and casually chatting and observing what's going on if you're making decisions about what you offer what you order what you advertise you know even like which games you decide to include in your library without looking at what your community needs and community means your students i think first and foremost your teachers and your parents right then you're not really responding to the needs of your community, You're, you just think you are. So I think really looking at what are some of the interesting ways that you can collect data and how can you respond to those? You know, it's a, I don't know if it's a small thing. It's a small thing, but I do, it, it is unusual the way that I do book talks in our school because a lot of schools don't have regular reading visits for middle and high school students. But in our school, we've arranged from grades six to eight, to have a bi-weekly visit. And each week they come out of a different subject so that over the course of the year, they only miss English three times, math three times, INS three times, but, but they get to spend 45 minutes every two weeks in the library, picking out books, doing some silent reading, getting some help. And what I've started doing is I have a big spiral bound book with the photo of each kid in it and notes for each of their visits. So as they're doing their silent reading, I go and I do mini reading conferences, kind of Donalyn Miller style
0: Mm.
1: um, or Nancy Atwell style, where I just take some notes. And at the end, I say, if anybody didn't find something they want today, please come and see me and let me know what it is you want for next time. And I write a little note that says next. So before that group comes in, I can make sure I respond to that. And I combine that with surveys that i do throughout the year about what are the genres they most like what are the books they most like so i have bigger data so i can say oh 6g is really into fantasy graphic novels and mysteries but 6m only wants nonfiction right now and i can respond in that way and that's a very reading specific question but we need to be looking at all the things we do in in that way how are we collecting that data and then you know we have we have so much power with this space. Like, I don't, I mean, the people who don't think librarians are powerful are dumb anyway, and I don't <laughs> know anytime, but really like, as you have mentioned several times, the library is one of the most powerful places in the school because it is one of the few, uniting common spaces that anyone can come in and anyone can do almost anything in so with apologies to mary oliver what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious library whose voices are you going to amplify whose faces are you going to show whose books will you purchase uh look i i promote lgbtq books i co-sponsor the lgbtq club i make sure that that club meets in the library during lunch other well we have now moved to after school because of some shifts in the way that our service clubs have worked. And that wasn't, it wasn't our decision, but for the last five years we met during lunchtime, because it was important for other kids who were in the library to see that this was happening. I, I do a book of the day, my librarian partner and I, the elementary school librarian and I both do two book of the day tweets. So the YAS at YIS library um, Twitter account, we have a, HS Book of the Day, MS Book of the Day, and two ES Book of the Day hashtags every day. And on Fridays, I've now made Fridays Day. Friday. So oh, we talk that. about who are the voices that we need to amplify. And it's, you know, sometimes it's LGBTQ voices, but particularly as Black Lives Matter has become not just a North American issue, but a, a discussion internationally, globally, as it should be, uh, it's really important for us to be thinking about how are we gonna use our space and our time and our power? So, yeah, I think, I think that's, I I really want people to think about who's showing up in your space. Why are they there? And probably more importantly, who isn't in your space and why aren't they there? How are you going to collect data on this? And, and that is casual conversations are important, but formal data collection is important too. And then using that to inform what you do next.
0: Gosh, you know, I, I I love everything that you just said. And I, I kind of think, the library is such a powerful platform for the school, and I, I kind of think it, when the school doesn't see it that way for whatever reason, it's a real missed opportunity. And you know, I feel like now that I'm at a place in my career, what, when I have a better understanding of the things to look for in a school, you know, if I were doing another job search, I think that would be one of my like go-to questions: is like, tell me about what's happening in the library right now, and just seeing, you know, can the head of school do they know? Like, yes. are they interested in it? You know, can they list a few different things? Because um, again, I, I do think it speaks to the quality of the school and and it, it just says so much about the culture of the school. And I also love that idea of, of asking, you know, hey, what, what didn't you find? Like, what were you not able to find that you wanted to find? And I kind of think not just for libraries, but for any teacher, like what a great question to be asking more regularly, like, you know, what were you hoping to get out of this subject or to get out of, um, this unit or, you know, this year together, what that- the
1: exit ticket, what do you wish you'd learned about today? What quite, you know, it's, and I think it's, it's actually a little bit different than saying, what questions do you still have? That's yeah. different. That's saying in the thing I wanted to talk about today, what do you still want to know? but saying, what do you wish you'd learned about today? What do you wish you knew today? That's about what do you care about? And that, I think flipping that lens is really important. And I also wanna say, like I, I, I have an incredibly supportive administration. I get a lot of credit at my school, Vicki and I both do for running a really inclusive, exciting space that people wanna be in, but it works because we have an, a supportive admin and because we have a supportive um, staff. And yes, Vicki and I both worked together To make sure that we have a staff that knows they can rely on us and that wants to be there and wants to work with us, but that is much harder to do if you don't have an admin that supports you. um, You know, I guess, emotionally and financially it helps to have money, but you know what even even libraries without money can still be places that kids want to be.
0: yeah absolutely gosh katie thank you so much for for all of your time i feel like i've got this huge list of resources i'm going to make sure that that's in the in the show notes for for folks to go to to go to and again just a critical reminder like you said anybody who thinks the library uh is not an important component of your school you just were kind of given 97 reasons to think about that again mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tricia. I was really, uh, as I, as I said, when we were talking earlier, I had a little bit of um, imposter syndrome coming into this because there's so many great books and there's so many ways you can do this that I was worried I wouldn't be able to share it all, but I feel a lot better at the end of this. I think this must just be because you're very good at this. You're excellent interview. (laughs) Thank you for a great question. It was really, it's really nice. And it's, it's really good to reflect on you know, what I'm doing and what's working and what I still want to work on and, and where I can go next. So I really appreciate that.
0: Well, and I, yeah, I would love to do a follow-up question again, like months later, because like you said, you know, like a librarian's work is, is never done. And I know, you know, in the new year, there's going to be other books and, and other things to talk about.
1: That sounds great. And because I'm going to participate in the Queer Lit Readathon, I will have lots of new recommendations.
0: <sighs> yes, I want to hear all about that.
1: Cool.